in your Bible this morning, the book of Ephesians chapter 6. The book of Ephesians chapter 6. The subject today is silence in the face of evil. Silence in the face of evil. And in Ephesians chapter 6, we begin reading God's Word in verse 10. Would you stand with me, please, as we read the Scriptures together? Ephesians 6 and 10. Finally, my brethren, so now he's concluding this letter to these people in the church at Ephesus. Finally, one more thing I want to say to you. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand, there it is, first time, against the wiles of the devil. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, evil powers, against the rulers of the darkness of the world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand. Verse 11 is stand. Verse 13 is withstand. And then having done all, the third time to stand. And then in 14, the fourth time, stand therefore. And he tells us the armor that we're to put on. Four times, he says, we are to stand. And in verse 13, when you are seated, take your pen or pencil and underline one phrase at the end of 13, having done all, stand. Having done everything else, stand. Thank you. You may be seated. Having done all, stand. After you have sung, stand. After you have preached, stand. After you have witnessed, after you have prayed, after you've done everything else that a Christian is supposed to do, he tells you four times, there's still one more thing to do, we're to stand. Go back with me in history, 90 years ago, almost to today, it's November the 6th, 1932. It's Reformation Day in Germany. We don't uh, celebrate Reformation Day in Baptist churches, but in Lutheran churches, it is a big and important day in their church calendar because on that day they honor the man who was the driving force in the Protestant Reformation. That would be Martin Luther, one of the great, greatest and most influential people in Western civilization's history. Luther, the man who had the courage to challenge the Pope when the Pope was the very strongest man in all the world, had so much power that at one point a king got crosswise with him and came to the palace where the Pope was to try to reconcile, and the Pope made him stand outside in the snow for several days barefooted. Powerful man. And then Luther not only challenged the Pope, he challenged the king, the ruler of Germany at that time, and the whole German political establishment. He took the whole political religious world on at one time 
and God gave him the victory. We'll never forget his, um, his immortal words where he said after he had delivered his speech to the Diet of Worms, which is the German parliament at that time, who could ever forget what Luther's last words were? After he had made his arguments, here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. He put himself in the hands of God. He had to hide for over a year in a castle in the basement of it. He had to run like a hunted animal for a long time, for months on end, and yet he survived, and his movement survived. The place that day that I'm referring to on November 6, 1932, was the Kaiser Wilhelm Memorial Church. It's in midtown Berlin, right dead center in the town. I was there years ago, and I saw that church. It was bombed out during World War II, and it's nothing now but some walls standing and a foundation and a burned-out hulk, if you will, of a building. It had once been a gigantic, beautiful church. It was named after the Kaiser, who would have been the ruler of Germany at that time. On the walls were murals of the German life and of the German Kaiser. A mistake. Why would we honor the king in the house of God? Why would we not honor only the king, not the king of Germany? So that tells us where that whole movement had drifted at that time in Germany. It would be comparable to our national cathedral in Washington or St. Patrick's Cathedral in New York, major influential houses of worship that had taken on almost a civic tone that the people of the country looked to that church for all official funerals and things like that. It was a thorough mixture of state and church. The, there was no separation there between the state and the church. Seated that day in the audience were the elite of Germany, the upper crust of German society and political life. They were all there, the judges from the highest courts, the members of the German Riksdag or the parliament, their ruling class. They were all there, very proud people that day, and the preacher stood to preach. His name was Diedrich Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer at that time was only a 30-year-old man, but he had become, he became famous across the world. He was a brilliant, brilliant theologian and a courageous patriot. Now, I would not agree with much of Bonhoeffer's theology, he being Lutheran and I being Baptist, but I have a deep and abiding respect for him for his patriotism as much as for his for his religious belief. The text he chose was Revelation chapter 2. And this august body of people, the church packed on Reformation Day, one of the biggest days of the year. Bonhoeffer opened his Bible, Revelation chapter 2 and verse 2. I know thy works, the words of the Lord Jesus, and thy labor, he's speaking to the Ephesian church. I know your patience good things about you. 
I know how you cannot bear them which are evil. And you have tried them which say they are apostles and are not. And you found them liars. You have borne and you have patience. For my name's sake, you have labored and you have not fainted. And so he commends them a great deal here. But then he says, nevertheless. Nevertheless, I have somewhat, I have something against you, church, at Ephesus, because you have left your first love, not because you've lost it. To lose something is accidental. To leave something is intentional. You have intentionally walked away from the truth of the gospel and the love that you had for Christ. You've lost your passion. You've lost your tears, your burden, your heart, your first love. Then in verse 5, he says, remember, go back in your mind and think about days when you were fervent. Remember from whence you are fallen and repent. He calls them to repentance. And do the first works or else I will come unto thee quickly and I will remove your candlestick, the symbol of a church in the Bible, a candlestick. I will remove your candlestick out of his place, except you repent. And Bonhoeffer read that text, and then he preached on it. He charged that German church. Really, the Lutheranism across Germany was what he was speaking about, not just that one church. He charged them with leaving their first love, of losing their passion and being silent in the face of evil because at the time he was speaking, Adolf Hitler was making his run for power in Germany. And people were enamored with him because under the previous administration, World War I, they had had inflation that soared to 250%. Under the previous administration, nothing worked in the country. And Hitler came to power, and he was an administrative genius. He made things work. What did they say about Hitler? He made the trains run on time. He made, he, every detail of German life was improved under Adolf Hitler, except he became such a wicked, wicked man. And Bonhoeffer was the lone voice to challenge Hitler. Three days after this speech, he was on a national radio program, and he charged Hitler with his sin of anti-Semitism, his hatred of the Jews. Bonhoeffer said, I see in the future what's going to happen. We're stirring up the population against the Jews, and there's such hatred it's going to end in violence. And midway his radio program, they pulled the plug and cut him off, silenced him, canceled him as we would say today. And so you see a lot of parallels about what was happening there and perhaps what's happening today. So Bonhoeffer said to that church with all these esteemed people, repent or God's going to pull the candlestick from Lutheranism in Germany and God is going to judge us. And then in that speech, he made this statement. And I'll read it to you. One of the great statements that a preacher could ever utter from a pulpit, silence in the face of evil is itself evil. Not to speak is to speak. 
Not to act is to act. God will not hold us guiltless. Bonhoeffer's life changed that day. I told you what happened the following week. He paid with his life for his stand. Bonhoeffer was arrested, put in prison at Flossenburg, Germany. And then one day the order came only three weeks before the war ended. When they already knew it was over, it was a useless revenge killing. They sent the word down that he was to be hung. The soldiers in the room, a gathering room, 150, 200 people size, they couldn't find anything to hang him with. So a soldier went to the piano in the corner and clipped out one of the strings, tied it around his neck, and hung him. He died at 38, 39 years of age. Bonhoeffer said, what is the role of the church to the people that day? What is the role of a church? What function does the church play in society? Well, there's some obvious roles. First of all, first and most important of all, as we sung a few moments ago, is to worship God. Every Christian is a worshiper of God. The Bible is very clear. We're to gather corporately and worship as you and I are doing right now. Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is. There are people that do that, but don't do that. Don't ever quit attending church faithfully and regularly. And so much the more, as you see the day approaching, as as the darkness gathers and as we near the coming of the Lord, be more faithful, not less faithful for heaven's sakes. And then you're to worship privately, not only corporately, but privately. And so we teach you to begin the day with the Bible in your lap, to begin with on your knees in prayer with your petitions to the Lord. Worship is a function of the church. And then the church has a role of evangelism, to proclaim the gospel of Christ to every creature, take him to all ethnicities, to all nations. And so we have missionaries among us today who are going to the foreign fields, but we have as great a responsibility as those missionaries have in taking the gospel to every creature in the PD area of South Carolina. And then there's a role to make disciples, make disciples after people are saved to teach those people, to train those people, to work with those people, to pour our lives into them, to develop them so that they look like Jesus Christ in the communities in which they live. And then there's this role of ministry, to meet the needs of people in Jesus' name, physical needs, spiritual needs, emotional needs, whatever the needs of people are, to our ability to meet them, we go to those people and we seek to minister to them. But there's another role, and it's rarely, rarely ever mentioned. It's never mentioned in a lot of places. I don't mention it perhaps as much as I should. You find it in verse 13 there in your Bible. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 13, look again with me and see it directly from God's Word. And having done all to stand, to stand. The role of the church is to stand. That role is both positive and negative. We are to stand for 
something. What do we stand for? Well, we stand for the Word of God. We stand for the truth of the Bible. Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18, Christ says, I'm going to build my church. And he said, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The gates of hell, evil, darkness, Satan's kingdom will not prevail. It will never win. He pictures the church on the offense, not on the defense. The church is on the offense and is charging like a mighty, mighty armor right at the forces of evil. And he says, if you will do that in my name, evil will not prevail. Right now in our world, it appears that evil is prevailing in so many places. But the church of the Lord Jesus Christ has the promise of the Father. It will not, evil will not prevail if the church will be what it ought to be. In Jude 3, we're to stand for the positive side. We're con to contend for the faith. We are to preach and promulgate and publish in every way we possibly can the faith. We're to stand for the doctrines. We're to stand for the Word of God. We're to stand for the Lord Jesus Christ. We're for something. We stand for something. But we also, there's a negative side to standing. We stand against something. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10 again. Go back with me. Be strong in the Lord. And in verse 12, we wrestle not. Wrestling is a contest. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, humans, but against principalities. And that refers to powers, ruling powers against the powers, the rulers of the darkness of the world and spiritual wickedness in high places. We stand for something. We are charging the gates of hell. We are contending for the faith, but we stand against something, and that is the world powers of darkness. In James 4 and 7, he says, resist not the devil. So we stand against the devil. Now, that's negative. And we live in a world when you're not supposed to say anything negative about anybody or anything. And preachers try to be positive about everything they say. And yet the reality is there are things we absolutely have to stand against or we are defeated. We're defeated by definition. And so we're for some things, our doctrines, the truth of God, Jesus, our Bibles, morality, we stand against though the powers of darkness. You see that illustrated so well in the book of Nehemiah. And in Nehemiah, you know, Nehemiah went to Jerusalem and gathered the people together, organized them, and he began to build the walls. And he built the walls. He, he rebuilt the entire wall around the city of Jerusalem. He built it in 52 days. Boy, a, a major, major accomplishment. Now, there's a little verse over there in Nehemiah. I forgot the the reference of it, but Nehemiah said, and we were working on the wall, and our enemies were coming, and they were trying to overthrow the walls, and they were trying to destroy our work even before the mortar dried in the walls, in the bricks. And so he said, I organized the people this way. He said, half of the people had a trowel in their hand. They were builders, and half of the people had a sword in their hand. They were the fighters. And so we were building, and we were battling. We were fighting, but we were moving forward. We were 
positive, we were building something. We were negative, we were fighting off the enemy. And that's precisely what God has ordained the church to do. So, what is the role of the church? It's to worship, it's to evangelize, it's to make disciples, it is to minister to people, but it is also to stand. We have a solid, I've laid out for you a solid biblical theological argument for why the church of Jesus Christ must stand, just as, uh, as Bonhoeffer laid that argument out 90 years ago on Reformation Day in Berlin. And to stand will provoke suffering. Nobody wants to preach about standing much. Nobody wants to hear about standing much. I didn't promote my sermon. I didn't know if everybody would come if I did. Who wants to hear about standing against the forces of darkness? It's not very, uh, somebody say, oh, just preach something positive. Make me feel good today. Well, I hope I will, but I hope it'll be the right kind of feeling good. You see, to stand will provoke suffering. There's a wonderful verse. I first was, it was called to my attention by Joseph Tan when he preached here many years ago. It's in Matthew chapter 10. And I could quote it to you. It's just a phrase. But I want you to maybe mark it in your Bible. And uh, years from now, you may be in a situation where you need to remember this. Matthew chapter 10 and verse number 16. The Lord Jesus Christ speaking to his apostles, what does he say? I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. So I picture a little lamb, a little sheep, and I picture around it wolves, a whole, what are wolves, a pack, whatever they are. And the, the, the one little sheep is encircled by the wolves, and they're approaching that little sheep. And they're going to tear that little sheep to bits if they can. And Jesus said, I'm sending you out and you're the sheep. And the forces of evil are the wolves. And then notice what he says, though. You must be as wise as a serpent. You're in an intolerable, difficult position. Be wise. And then what does he say? And be as harmless as doves. Your goal is not to beat people's brains out. Your goal is to be Christ-like, but at the same time to stand, and if necessary, to suffer as that little sheep in the midst of those wolves. The church of Jesus Christ has a history of suffering and martyrdom. Daniel, he knew what it was to suffer. You pray to any other God for the next 30 days, and you're going to the lion's den, and you will be torn up, not by the wolves, but by the lions. And what did he do? He stood. He went to his home, and it even puts an emphasis on it in the text. He opened up the doors so everybody could see him, got down on his knees and looked toward Jerusalem, (laughs) and he prayed three times every day. Did God deliver him from the lion's den? No, he didn't. He didn't deliver him from it. He delivered him through it. And the Lord came and demonstrated his power when that man took his stand. And I think of John the Baptist who went before the wicked king. 
you murdered your own brother so you could steal his wife. He paid with his head. He was not delivered, as was Daniel. And there was Stephen charging the religious leaders of Israel with the death of Christ. A whole chapter, 60, 70 verses in Acts 7. He stood. He stood against the powers of darkness. And then you move forward a hundred or two years, and there's Perpetua, the first woman martyr whose name we know. We know of her because she kept a very detailed journal. She was 22 years old, a beautiful young girl, a member of the nobility in Rome, highly educated, had an infant son she was nursing even as she was in the prison. And they said to her, you must renounce Christianity. You have so much influence because of who you are and your birth and your family. Renounce Christianity. And she said, I will not. She stood. They fed her to the lions. She stood. It provokes suffering. There was Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley who back in 1555 in England when Bloody Mary was on the throne and Christians were being killed, and they condemned these two preachers to death. They tied them to a stake. You can see that site if you go to England and visit Oxford University. It happened on the Oxford Square. Still marker. There's a big marker there today. And... Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley were tied to the stake. They piled the wood around them. They threw on the oil to cause the fire to burn, and they lit the flame. And the flames were coming up, and the last words heard were, Hugh Latimer, play the man, Master Ridley, because today we will light such a candle that by the grace of God it will never be put out. They stood. Men of convictions. Men worthy of honor and respect. Men who love Christ more than they love life. And it was Martin Luther who stood for a principle, justification by grace without any works involved. And there was Wilberforce, William Wilberforce, an esteemed member of the parliament, a member of the nobility in England, who worked for 50 years in parliament to abolish slavery. And were it not for Wilberforce, slavery might not have even been renounced here in the United States for many years after that. But he stood. And then there's Bonhoeffer standing against Nazism and anti-Semitism in Germany in the 1930s. And then there's those unnamed millions who have stood against communism and socialism and tyrants. They stood in Germany and China and Russia and North Korea today and Cuba and a hundred other places on the earth, having done all, they stood. Why do Christians, why are Christians willing to pay such a price to stand? They've stood because 
They're grounded in a conviction. Listen to this. Don't miss a word of it. Christians have been willing to stand because of faith, a faith that's grounded in a deep conviction that Jesus Christ alone is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and that His Word is the final and ultimate authority in life for all matters of faith and practice in living. And they had these convictions. They would not be shaken. Christ, my King, my Lord, has spoken. And what He has said is more precious to me than what people think or what people will say about me. It's more precious to me than anything in this world. If I have to give my life, I don't want to, but I'm willing. And having done all, I'll stand. So where are we in history now? What is this? How do I apply this to the Florence Baptist Temple? I'm looking at a comfortable, for the most part, pretty affluent group of people. Comfortable in life. Living in the greatest country in all of history. Enjoying the comforts of life, driving nice cars, living in nice homes, wearing nice clothing, eating good food, nourished. There's nobody here today hungry. Nobody here has had to sacrifice like the people I've just named. I haven't. And while we are seated in this beautiful building this morning, a progressive, secular ideology ideology just simply meaning ideas or belief system, a progressive, secular, atheistic ideology is trying to destroy our biblical worldview as a nation. And that's a fact. You can't argue that fact. And our country has so changed, it's hardly recognizable from what it was 10 years ago. The America of 2015 is not the America of 2022. You know that. The world knows that. Ralph Drollinger, who is a man who has a ministry to the Congress and Senate, the congressmen and senators in Washington, CAP Ministries, he made a wonderful statement. He said, it should not come as a surprise that a country bent on throwing out its Judeo-Christian worldview in favor of a humanistic secularism would have problems agreeing on anything. It's not a mystery that ever, everything is divided. America is like Germany before Hitler. Nothing works anymore. You see it. Why is the supply chain broken down? It shouldn't be broken down. I oughtn't to have to worry about if I can get peach halves when I go to food line. I say that because I've been looking for them for a month. They don't make them anymore. And when I say anything to anybody anywhere, it's what? It's the food, it's the supply chain. Boy, if I ever find that fella. Why did it work so well until two years ago? When I could have more peach halves than this whole crowd could eat in one store. 
And why is it so broken? It's broken because, as Mr. Dollinger has so said, it shouldn't come as a surprise that a country bent on throwing out its Judeo-Christian worldview in favor of humanistic socialism would have problems agreeing on anything, and we don't agree on much. And the clash of ideologies that I'm describing is validated and manifested and demonstrated and shown in the election this past week, in the court cases that come down. And so in Michigan, 65% of the people in Michigan voted for abortion up until the day the baby's born. And in Montana, 52%. I thought Montana was a fairly conservative place. Do you know what the election revealed? It revealed that half the people in this country are absolutely irrevocably committed to killing children in the womb before they're born. You can't argue that point, friend. Over and over and over, all the money that's been spent, all the prayers that have been sent, all the work that has been done, 50% of the people have dug in. We're not changing. We are absolutely committed to taking the life of the unborn. They're not persons. They're a clump of cells. And the LGBTQ ideology opposes biblical marriage, one man, one woman for life. And every time I open my mouth about it, somebody sends me a letter, sometimes more than one. Why are you dabbling in politics? These are not political issues. These are God's issues. These are moral issues. These are biblical issues. And sexuality is the big issue. A man can choose to become a woman, a woman, a man. A man now can have a baby. And what did Jesus say? Matthew chapter 19 and verse 4, God made them male and female, a simple binary choice, male or female. And children now, our children have become the targets. And so the schools across America in great degree have become places to indoctrinate children in the LGBTQ philosophy, in woke ideology with critical racist theory, a form of Marxism, dividing the world into the oppressed and the oppressors. And why would we not be concerned when we are told that if you're white, you're a racist? I'm not a racist. You say, I am. It doesn't bother me. I don't even care anymore. You can call me a white supremacist because I disagree with CRT. It doesn't bother me. Don't bother to send me the letter. You're wasting your stamp. I'm not a racist because I'm white. That's, that's not logical. But to be the church, to actually be the church, not to just say we're the church, we have to stand against these evils. These issues are political today only because the state has gotten out of its lane 
and is making laws and promoting ideologies contrary to biblical and natural laws established by the Creator that men have practiced for ages. They're not polit- they weren't ever political until now. What's political about taking the life of a child? That's a moral, biblical issue. And as a pastor, I can't be silent. There's a lot of big-name pastors right now. I could call their names. Boy, they, are, they have become very wimpy. It hurts the sale of their books, I guess. I don't know what it is. They say, we're not going to talk about this kind of stuff in the pulpit because for the sake of the gospel, if we talk about it, then people, unsaved people won't come and get saved. First of all, that's not true. When God begins to deal with people, He is the agent in salvation. He's going to direct them. And secondly, people can't really be saved anyhow without the convicting power of the Holy Spirit over their sins. So, no, we can't, we can't excuse ourselves by saying, well, we just want to preach the gospel. That's the only thing we do here. What happened to the church militant? What happened to singing onward Christian soldiers marching as to war? Because <laughs> we're not marching to war anymore. And we should be. There's a lot to war about. So, how do you prepare to stand? Let me give you a couple of things here. Number one, if you want to prepare to stand, first of all, make sure your salvation. Moses one day was getting ready to go into battle, and you know what he did? He said to the people, who is on the Lord's side? Come and stand over here. And he drew a line in the sand and had all the people come and stand on that side of that line. Who is on the Lord's side? Come and stand. And he drew the line because he wanted people who had the moral courage to take a stand with him. He wanted to know who he could depend on. He wanted to know who he could go to war with. And so, who was on the Lord's side became his battle cry. Today, we're living in such a spiritually dark time. You know, even the unsaved people understand there's something going on. Even unsaved people are talking about that. What is happening in our world today? All of this darkness coming at us. And if you're not really sure your salvation, you know, Satan can deceive you. Your mind is not protected by the Holy Spirit if if you don't have Christ and the Holy Spirit living in your life. And so you need to absolutely examine yourself. A profession of faith is not salvation. Being baptized is not salvation. There's one verse. I want you to look with me to it before we go here today. It's in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Recently, my little grandson, Monroe, came to me, and he was going to be baptized. And he said, I, I said, Monroe, I want to talk to you before you're baptized. And I said, I want to show you only one verse of Scripture. I want you to remember this verse the rest of your life. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and it's verse 21. And I explained it to him just like I'm going to explain it to you right now. For he, 
That he, Monroe, is God. He hath made him, that him is Jesus. God made Jesus to be sin. What does that mean? God put all the sins of all humanity upon the shoulders of Jesus Christ, who was sinless. He knew no sin. He was the perfect Lamb of God. He made him to be sin, who never sinned one time, who knew no sin, that we might be made righteous, that we might be made the righteousness of God. Jesus was punished at the cross. This is the heart, the core, the soul of the gospel. Jesus bore my sins. God put them on him, and he was punished in order for me to be righteous. And then God put his righteousness upon me. Isn't that wonderful? That's why we call the gospel the good news. We've been made righteous through the merits and the efforts and the death and the suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Now, if you have examined your heart and you know you're saved, put on the armor, the belt of truth. The belt then was a big wide thing. Cover your heart with the breastplate of righteousness. Every morning when you get up, put the armor on. Slide your feet into the gospel of peace. And pick up the shield of faith that will protect you against the wiles, the tricks of the devil. And put on the helmet of salvation. Cover your head because your brain will be attacked by the forces of darkness. And pick up your sword, the Word of God. It is the only offensive weapon that we have or need. And then go out praying. And take your stand for Jesus Christ and against every form of evil. I'm going to stand for everything that's good, and I'm going to fight everything that's bad. That's what it means to stand. And if I'll do that, Jesus said, I'll be the salt. And salt influences everything around it in its environment. It flavors it. It savors it. It preserves it. If you'll do that, you'll be the light at your office, in the school, in your job, in your family. You'll be the light. And the light pushes back the darkness. And the light reveals reality and truth. And God will use you. Stand for everything that's good. And stand against everything that's evil. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer standing in that church, with all the intelligentsia of Germany around him, silence in the face of the evil of the Nazis he was referring to is itself evil. And not to speak is to speak, and not to act is to act, and God will not hold us guiltless, having done all stand. Our heads are bowed.